Welcome to Between Two Curators, the podcast where two friends and, well, curators discuss art, life, and what, or rather, who inspires them. I'm Cliff. And I'm Jen. And in this episode, we speak to Kesha Hannam, inspiring human, speaker, writer, activist, lover of wit, and building connections. Hi, Kesh. Hello. Lover of wit. Lover That's of wit. great. I've never yeah. had anyone describe me as that. I'm going to put that on my bio. Like, you know, weave that in, wiggle it in. Truly. <laughs> Thank you for having me, guys. This is such an honor. The honor is ours. Um, you know, I thought that we could start by asking you, you know, just a really casual question. Go on. <laughs> How did you get to be you here <laughs> now? <laughs> In New York, um, from Australia to Hong Kong. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey, Kesh. Mm, thank you. Um, I love this this question. I, I always say that understanding somebody's landscape is so important. Uh, so I, I've had a very um, jagged life, I would say, not in, in any kind of negative way. I would, I've been very, very fortunate uh, and surrounded by a lot of love. I was born in Hong Kong. My mother's Indian, my father's English. I went to school in Australia and I lived there on and off for, for two decades. And then when I finished university, uh, after studying sociology and journalism and international business, I moved to London. And then I had this sort of pivotal conversation because I was totally like, I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. This is my life. And I was working at an insurance firm, which if you know me is just wild. Like I, I didn't even know this about you. Firm. Yeah, this that's is what I was lol. doing. Yeah, yeah, it's a big lol. It's a big lol. Um, and I was 21, 22, living in London. And my manager took me aside when I was meant to renew my contract. And she had this really life-changing conversation with me. And she was like, Keshia, you should not work in this industry you are too creative, like you need to get out and pursue other things. You've done a great job, but like, don't be here. And <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. Thank you for that permission. Um, and then I got on a flight and moved to Hong Kong. I had worked in food and beverage and had a real passion for it. I started working for a Michelin restaurant and um, writing for food magazine. That was my entry into journalism. And then from there, made connections to a bunch of different editors for large publications and started getting my bylines in CNN and Forbes and things like that. And then that sort of just informed a, a love of, of traveling and exploring and writing, which is what I did for a number of years based out of Hong Kong. Um, and then one summer when I was writing for Forbes, I was living in New York. It was my first summer in New York in 2016. And a mutual friend had connected me to somebody called Yelda and had been like, I don't know what you do. I don't know what she does, but I feel like you guys need to meet. And that was also one of those sort of life-changing sliding doors moments because she invited me to something called Camel Assembly, which I didn't, I was like, you want, what? You want me to come to a Camel Assembly? Like, <laughs> do I, what? And... Uh, I walked into this room of powerful women who supported each other and uplifted each other. And I was like, oh, I get it. I get it. If we had networks like this for women around the world, then we would probably be in a far better position in terms of visibility and rights for women. Uh, and then, you know, I said that we should try it in Hong Kong because as as you'll, you will both know, Hong Kong is was, especially in 2016, it was... Uh, far less conscious and creative than it even is now Absolutely. from, a, from yeah. an entrepreneurial on the ground standpoint. I think the art world, as you both also can speak to far in far greater detail than I can, 
has always existed and Hong Kong has never been a nascent market for the fine art world, but in terms of creativity and entrepreneurialism, it certainly lacked. Um, And so we brought Camel Assembly there and sort of started establishing a culture of of vulnerability and showing up for each other and, and having hard conversations. And then that kind of started Yelda and I on a on a kind of global mission that she had always intended for the company, but together we decided that it should be something that we could put in as many cities as possible. And so as of the beginning of this year, we were live in nine cities across four continents. Um, and then that was simultaneously when I got back into speaking and I was running an innovation club in Hong Kong at the same time. I just like, I have never had less than three jobs. I, I'm like, I one, it. no, three. <laughs> um, yeah, so in, in and amongst that, you know, speaking became my vibe. And then when I moved to New York in 2018, which was just the biggest culture shock of anywhere I've lived. I've lived in South Korea and Mumbai and Nairobi and London. And definitely New York was the largest culture shock I encountered. Um and since then, I've been really established in my in my niche of a performance speaker, which means that I sort of deliver a keynote, but then I also interlay some sort of creativity at the beginning and the end, whether it's a live performance by a drummer, and then I'll finish usually with a spoken word piece. Um, and that's kind of been my bag for, for the last two years. And now we live in a pandemic, and we're all trying to work out what connection and community looks like. And... Um, that's that's my focus as of now with a number of different outlets, but mm. um, getting money to people as much as possible, sharing stories and ensuring people don't feel alone at this time is are the sort of central foci. Mm. That's who I am right wow. now. <laughs> chapter and chapter and chapter and the now chapter. That's amazing. <laughs> um, there's, so, there's so much there and we will, of course, take a, a deep dive into camel assembly. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about, to sort of dive into that um, uh, narrative that you've you've fleshed out for us uh, about leaving the insurance company, <laughs> but um, starting to write and, and you move, uh, you move away, a bit of a fresh start, turning over uh, a new leaf. Um, and the thing that kind of connects many uh, of those different chapters that you illustrated for us. Um, is voice and whether it's your own voice, whether it's other people finding their voices or finding a platform for their voices. Uh, and I wonder if you could just say something about finding your own voice, whether it's through writing or um, being a being a keynote speaker on stage or facilitating other people's voices. That's a really careful question, Cliff. Thank you. Um, you know, I I do a lot of work with people finding their own stories. One of the organizations I do a lot of public speaking with is an organization called Dear World. And Dear World's mission is to help everybody find a story that only they can tell. And so a lot of the public speaking I do is on stage to facilitation to honor individual stories and help people to uh, articulate them. And what I find when we do these workshops, whether they're in whether they're in Spain or whether they're in a university in Pennsylvania. Um, you, I find that people really don't know and don't trust in their own story. So consistently, the thing that people come and say to me is like, "I love this concept, but I I don't think I have a story that's worth sharing." And we're so scared to share stories from our lives. Uh, for a number of different reasons, but I I would say the the main one is that we live in a culture that 
normalizes the entertainment industry and normalizes big publications and there is a, a sort of standard established for storytelling and it makes people believe like their stories are not worth sharing, which for me was a really big journey I had to go on. Dear World was a, it was a big linchpin in terms of my growth. I went, I, I was flown, I was living in Hong Kong and they flew me to LA to, to do training and the the um, the guy that ran training for, for Dear World, he was like, okay, so I want you to tell me a meaningful story. And I was like, got you. Uh, there was this time where I was flying and I met Mother Teresa and then my dad. And he's like, okay, that's an impressive story, but tell me, tell me a meaningful story. I was like, okay, got it. Uh, my business partner and I, we were trying to get into China because we were meant to run a social media workshop and we got deported. He's like, okay, that's an intense story. Like, tell me a meaningful story. <laughs> and I was like, I realized like, I didn't know how to do that. Like I live and lead vulnerability and like have been a community builder for five, six years. Um, and I was so caught up in my own understanding of what is impressive and what people needed to hear and how to adapt to the audience that I had a lot of trouble finding those authentic stories within myself. And so back to your question, Cliff, I think when it comes to finding our voice and finding our story, it's so important that we recognize what we specifically have have experienced and being able to share from that place. And mm. whether that's a, whether we're speaking on a social issue or whether that's us just sharing stories from our lives to connect with people, I think we're all running a lot of scripts and a lot of those scripts tell us how we should speak. And so we don't know our voice because our voice has been prescribed by somebody else. When we think about our voice, our voice has to relate to our life and our experiences. And that, that's a big journey that I go on constantly with authenticity. Uh, and I also see it a lot for other people, people not feeling like their stories are valid. That's incredible. And it links so much. I mean, I, I think the, the, the topic of authenticity, self-authenticity, identifying in others and permitting it in others, giving a platform for it is so important. And it's very much interlinked to, you know, a sense of self-awareness. And I think sometimes, you know, mm. self-awareness is you, you grow it. It's a muscle. You also have to flesh it out and use it. And, you know, we've talked about your keynotes, but I was also wondering, you've also led workshops, right? And so you're constantly meeting different people from so many different backgrounds, both as personal individuals, but also with it, working within a corporate structure. Um, and I thought that it could be interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit about what you do in these and maybe what you have found, because I feel there might be an authenticity link in there. Yeah, cool. Thank you. I... Um, you know, I actually prefer workshops to keynotes. I think mm. keynotes are very, I grew up as a, like from 15 to 21, I was a preacher. And so like, that was where I learned public speaking and it's very like output oriented. Whereas workshops are very much about us all hearing and listening to each other, which I far prefer. Um, you know, in the, in the workshops I tend to facilitate, whether for Camel Assembly or for Dear World or whether I'm individually running workshops around <clears throat> diversity, storytelling, communication, vulnerable, vulnerable leadership, whatever it is. Um, I, I think the, the first thing is that's really important is that we, we gain so much more by being present and listening to people. Mm. Um, my, Jen and I, like when we were in Hong Kong, we would just run rampant and, you know, we had so many different friends in so many different circles because I think that something that you and I particularly bonded on was the ability to listen deeply to people's stories and actually hear them. Um, and I think trying to translate that experience to 
a workshop is really important because I think that you know one of the one of the great human um, one of the great human lacks is our ability to feel seen and heard. And oh my when gosh. we yeah. when we have that, like your whole life changes. If you feel like you have people around you that are listening to you and that you are seen for who you are, your liter- your mental health changes, your career changes. And I think that it's seen to be a very um, ethereal concept, you know, but it actually comes down to it. And to relate this back to sort of my life as a as a perpetual immigrant, being born into Hong Kong as a non-Chinese person makes you immediately uh, an expat, which I would call an immigrant. And that was the culture, not in any kind of exclusionary way, but I do remember early incidents of racism and exclusion, as well as incidents of diversity and inclusion, um, starting in Hong Kong. And then I moved to Australia and I was the only brown kid in a whole region of a coastal town and then (laughs) went to, and then from there, my friends have never looked the same or sounded the same, you know? And so for me, belonging and identity has been a big, uh, has been a, a real purpose and pursuit of my life. And I think that in workshops, the thing that I constantly recognize is people sort of turn around and look at each other and they're like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one and you just said my story. And there was a, to, to wrap this kind of idea, there was a, an experience I had when we were running Nairobi's first camel assembly um, in 2018 and that was the uh, eighth city we'd opened. And we were sitting in this circle of 40 women, Kenyan, Indian, expats, immigrants, And everybody was sitting there and there was this moment where a woman was sharing something from her life and she said verbatim a sentence that a woman in London had said three months prior. And I was like, ah, we are so much more the same than we are different. And it's so much easier to focus on our differences because they're so much more evident. But we find wholeness, belonging and understanding when we recognize that we can start first with what we share, and then we can understand what our differences are. And so that sequencing, I think, is really important and something that I really advocate for in in workshops. Hmm. Amazing. Thank you very much for that. And um, really key points about about listening, listening to each other and from from where it all all begins. And and it's a really great segue into Camel Assembly. Um, And so I wonder if you could just, uh, you had a great great intro there of, of working and in, walking into your, your first meeting and, and figuring out what is going on, but then finding it a really totally. uh, empowering place and space. Um, and I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about what, what, it, what it is, been running for about four years, and, and it's an international network. Um, go on, over to you. Yeah, so we will celebrate our, our fifth anniversary in September. Um, Camel Assembly's mission, very simply, is to connect women around the world based on who they are and not what they do. And that comes very much from a place where, you know, five years ago, the conversation around women was quite different. It was pre-Me Too. It was pre the various demagogues that are in power right now. It was a time where where women were still very scarce and um, there was a, a constant sort of energy of there's not enough there's not enough partners there's not enough job opportunities and therefore your women that were beside you were a threat they weren't a support system and so camel the reason it's called camel is we take inspiration from the that animal the camel which a creature loved for many reasons but 
and important historically, but particularly for us relevant because a camel is a creature that when cared for has an unlimited service to provide to those around. And that was really the intent of our mission is how do we give women a safe space, particular all kinds and truly diverse women. So, you know, definitely women of color, definitely women who are in various positions of power, definitely women who are, are not, you know, and to strip away someone's title and give them only the opportunity to explain themselves how they see themselves or how they they believe that they want to be. And then to connect people based on that means that you just have authentic connection. Like you just can't yeah. fake energy. You can't fake that. Okay, I connected with you. Oh, I didn't know you were, you know, one of the VPs of Art Basel. Oh, I didn't know that you happened to be a journalist for Vice. Oh, I didn't know that, you, you know, which are all titles that are important if they inform the work that you love to do but they shouldn't be how we define people. And so Camel Assembly's mission is to constantly create a community and a culture that changes that narrative. So that was the first and foremost thing. But then secondly, to be able to create those connections around the world that essentially lead to to magic and visibility and and then add support to that through organizations. So whether that's connecting people to projects through the UN or whether it's just people being like, hey, I recognize that right now in the coronavirus People don't have money, but I'm getting unemployment benefits. So let me put, you know, let's all put $100 into a pot and we can give that out to one woman a month, you know. And we've seen all all manner, like all, all levels of that spectrum come to life. Um, but the, the primary focus is how do we change the way that we perceive one another and have a culture of abundance versus having a culture of, of taking and scarcity. And that's so, so powerful, right? Because... I mean, I even think back, it links back to like how you, how you're schooled, right? It's so often like, I am this, I am this, I am that. You're pigeonholed, right? Mm. Rather than articulated. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a label that's assigned to you rather than you fleshing into yourself to Mm. describe yourself and in turn connect with people. I think that's so beautiful and so powerful Mm. and Mm. And also think, relevant for, for and you know, and I we've always said that we're driven by women for everyone. And this is a yeah. mission that women have created uh, because I think that we needed a, a – the world operates in a very masculine energy and we needed women to be able to lead this thing. But that is not something that's only relevant to women. That is something that absolutely. men also absolutely benefit from. And I really – it's really important to us that we know that this is not just a women thing and women need this. Like men need this too. Right. And it's not, it's not, actually, it's the opposite. It's not insular. It's inclusive. Um, totally. Those are two completely, you know, different, mm-hmm. different approaches. Um, and I was, I was wondering if we could talk about maybe a little bit about the assemblies themselves. Now they are these beautiful circles. There's a lot of trust that is built. So we don't want to betray the trust of the people who shared their stories, but I think that we need to talk more about vulnerability. I certainly feel that it's a source of empowerment and bravery, but maybe there are certain recurring elements or maybe certain recurring vulnerabilities that emerge, which are in effect the strength of people you see all over the world. And I was wondering whether there are certain connecting points that you yeah. can you can you yeah. can touch on. I'm I'm sort of wondering similarly whether. Um, <laughs> Whether in fact you you have uh, an endnote these various global connections uh, and then go out and put a workshop or a seminar together on a theme that people then attend, 
or whether it's um, the, the process of finding those things that people are interested in in different places and are relevant to them at a certain time. I think mm. Cliff should come to the next one in London. Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, 100%. Camel, Camel, right here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, what was really important for us, we get this question a lot. It's like, oh, who's speaking? Like, what are we speaking about? And mm-hmm. our answer to that is always you. Like, you're, you're going to speak, you know? And in, it's really important, I think, for us to switch or just be aware. You know, I, one of the things I say of my life, because my life has been rife with bias, is that the safest place to hide water is with a fish. And this idea that we can't see the thing that we're swimming in, right? And I think that's also true of the way that we show up for events or whether we how we show up for conferences, how we show up to other people is very much like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to receive something from you so I don't need to uh, show myself, you know? And Brené Brown speaks really well about this. She speaks about showing up but also allowing yourself to be seen. Mm. And that mm. idea of being seen is how we centralize all of our assemblies. Assemblies have a very similar, simple format. They are, they're not complicated, but they're so magical because they do have this very human element to them, which is people arrive... They connect, and it's always interesting to see the energy before an assembly versus after. People Absolutely. Come, yeah. they, they sit down, and we're usually in a circle, and we spend, you know, literally 30 to 60 seconds explaining what camel assembly is so people are, you know, not scared. They're about to be indoctrinated into a cult, and we're going <laughs> to sacrifice a goat, you know, because we're sitting in this circle, and we're like, welcome to camel assembly, <laughs> you know. Um, and then we spend, and then we sort of um, – we always ask two questions. We ask, who are you without referring to your nine to five, which is like the first thing that floors people trying to explain yourself without using your job title is <laughs> the fir- a lot of people have just never had that question before. Um, and then we ask a prompt question that is relevant to the time that we're in. So, you know, in, in a lot of our new cities, that question has been things like, where, what do you cha- like, what is the biggest challenge for you actualizing and when what are the what are the um, challenges that you face and then they can be you know this week we're speaking about belief systems in camel assembly and you know when i say belief systems most people think of religion but recognizing that we all have belief systems that inform our actions and so how do we change that we might speak about uh vulnerability as as jen said and speaking about like where where are you scared to be vulnerable and this there's uh, there's you know two main things that happen in a, in a circle. The first is that you surprise yourself because you're nominated to speak and then you're sort of like, okay, I'm just going to say something that came and it's not calculated and it's not performative. It's just your honest answer because you haven't had time to prepare it. And so you surprise yourself with your answer. But secondly, by the end of the circle, you've heard your story five or six times at least, you know, and beca- because our experiences are far more human and we have far more in common than we do that separate us. And so by the end of it, you're sort of like, oh, okay, cool. I feel a little bit less alone in this journey. And I also feel like I want to come and talk to you about how you've, you know, worked through having having a sister with disability or how is your mom? Because my mom is also like struggling with different kind of substance abuses. Or I also just got a new job and I feel completely out of my depth. Like you're connecting on real human issues versus, hey, I work in tech too. How's the tech industry for you? You know, like there's there's so <laughs> much five. more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's so much more substance to be able to build on. Um, and so and then that's it. That's it. And the circle finishes. And then people like 
you know, by the end of it, we've had a number of different assemblies in, in Jen's foxhole apartment because it's a beautiful yeah. apartment. And the noise by the end, because people just feel safe to be able to share and show up as who they are, um, is just markedly different to how people enter. And that's my favorite part to just, and then I just remove myself and sort of stand on the side <laughs> and drink my wine and watch everybody connecting. Um, but that's, you know, that's the central tenant of how we've built assemblies. And then from there, yes, then we can show up and, and then we can put on a keynote or then we can put on a performance. And because everyone feels safe and seeing people, the energy and culture that comes with our events is so different because everybody feels safe to be themselves. And I think that's something that we lack. Like conferences are so boring, guys. Like they're so boring. And like if we had just a little bit more connectivity and a little bit more authenticity, I feel like they would they would just be so much more powerful. And that's another very small element of what we're trying to build as well. Mm. I mean, they sound absolutely, I definitely will have to attend one because they sound yes! um, pretty empowering. Um, I, I was wondering what you thought about... Um, these times, I, I guess today, these days, and, and people and their sense of belonging uh, in times mm. of um, social media. One of the one of the great things about social media or, or the internet is that it can connect people who otherwise wouldn't be able to be connected around certain issues, certain communities, um, but also ways of ways of seeing things. And I and I wondered if you'd noticed as you've traveled the world hosting um, all of these different assemblies. Uh, different uh, cultural understandings at the present about belonging, um, different ways of thinking mm. about belonging. Mm. Yeah, I think belonging is really interesting as a, I think belonging, like I love, I'm love and I'm terrified of belonging. <laughs> you know, it's like mm. such a big topic and such a big one for me. Um, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of belonging in my life and have created it with beautiful communities. Um, so I, I don't, I don't want to, misrepresent the struggles that I face um but I also do I see loneliness and the inability to connect as one of the 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 great uh threats that we have in our society and particularly mm. now and I think my concern with with the pandemic is that we're not actually understanding I think we're seeing a lot of the symptoms so we're seeing unemployment and we're seeing furloughs and we're seeing you know um we're seeing a enough that economically concerns us, mm. but I'm so concerned about the children that are locked up with abusive parents who all of a sudden don't have jobs and don't have an outlet. I'm so concerned about our our people who, and I've heard these stories, I've heard of people who are kind of being re-triggered because they're in situations that whether they were in jail, whether they were... Um, formally in in some sort of mental health space whereby they needed to isolate and be by themselves um whether they're just sitting with their thoughts for the first time ever because they're unable to distract themselves all of those things for me are concerning because we haven't provided enough infrastructure for people to work through and process them mm, um and yeah. so there are a number of different organizations actually one of my housemates works on uh, a really powerful platform that gives free mental health services to frontline workers and to people who are not insured or feel like they need support. So I'm, I'm also very uh, hopeful because I do see a lot of innovation coming to meet those needs. And to be honest, like one of the other big things I'm really concerned about is how much we're, 
not aware of climate, like climate change is a really, really big passion of mine and how much we don't recognize that climate change is still, still there. Like it's definitely cool. We, we brought a little bit of the temperature down because we're not driving on the roads and not catching as many planes, but there are still drastic changes we need to make. And the fact that the fashion industry is still booming and the fact that we are now, you know, trying to sedate ourselves through other consumptive ma- uh, measures is so concerning to me. Um, and so I think from from that standpoint, like all of these things come back to our sense of belonging and community and connection. And we we have these unhealthy behaviors when we don't feel like we are connected and we have a sense of belonging. And so for me now, I think I'm really curious as to, so take the fashion industry, for example. Um, have you guys heard of hauling? There's like a phenomena on no. the internet that nope. one of my friends just introduced me to called hauling. How do you spell it? H <laughs> A U L I N G, hauling. Oh. And basically, it's an influencer and they go through an outfit that they've like procured and they talk about the top and then the pants and the shoes. And, the, and then after they do that, they get hundreds of thousands of views on social media. And then from there, so they get paid by companies to do these things and then people go and buy these things. And that is such unhealthy behavior on so many levels, you know, like because people are addicted, they're addicted to online shopping. It's a mental health thing. Um, and then we we buy these things that don't have quality and then we're throwing them out. We're like, oh, I'm in a pandemic, so I'm just going to chuck this stuff out. And without realizing that everything has shut down. So recycling plants have shut down, like the the locomotion of getting that thing to a landfill that is also affected by the pandemic. Essential workers are putting themselves at risk because now we've decided to throw out a bunch of things. So all of, and then at the end of all of this, charity stores are going to become a, a dumping ground. You know, charity stores are going to be like, oh, I have all these clothes that I wear 5% of. You know, the stats are that we wear 20% of the clothes we wear, we have. 5% of them probably are now what we're wearing because we're inside all the time. And so we're going to just take all of our stuff and chuck them out. And then that's going to go to landfill. And, and so the cycle continues. And so it seems, it seems quite errant to sort of connect belonging and the fast fashion industry, but they're so deeply connected because we're trying to fill this thing. We're trying to fill this void and not to get too into spiritualism, but like it's purpose and it's meaning and it's connectivity. And those spiritual values are never going to be met with the physical things, but the advertising industry is going to try and convince us that that's what we're missing. And so all of those things are in my head all the time. Um, and I think, you know, the the remedy for it is is being present and just being aware of of why we're doing what we're doing and, and why we buy and why we drink and why we uh, numb through television and, you know, all of these things that we do because we're trying to find this thing which is just being vulnerable, showing up and connecting. That is truly like it's like drinking a glass of water yeah absolutely and where do you get those different forms of nourishment Mm. um and is it purposeful or is it apathetic um correct and yeah it really resonates because we talk about belonging and belonging in ourselves but then also there's a planet that we live in (laughs) let's keep it Um, if not, we're not even going to be having these conversations. Yes, um, correct. 
I would love and we would love to go on and on. Um, but I actually think that we're coming up to our last question for you, oh which God, is, um, I know, I know. Um, what creative inspiration do you have for our listeners? Yeah, that was the one question that you gave me a little bit of a heads up on. And I was like, yeah, Ooh, woo, mm. OK. I thought that was um, helpful, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only one question. I, <laughs> casual, but how are you here? Tell us about your whole life. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. You um, did well on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This one, you know, I would say that a big thing that has helped me in my creative life is replacing the idea of performance with habit. And so for me, particularly when it comes to speaking and speech writing and writing, um, communication arts, say, um, I have a tendency to be quite performative in terms of how, or to measure my success by my performance. So how many views did that article get? How well did people respond to your keynote versus recognizing that each of those instances are instead an opportunity for us to practice our art and, and be in the habit of, creating and putting out our craft and um that I think especially in this time because I know a lot of creatives are are really struggling because we're not working like a lot of us haven't got the like I'm I'm doing my first virtual keynote in a week you know and it's been three months and that's unusual um and so in this time instead of looking at the performance and this is applicable to photography it's applicable to fine arts whatever whatever your art is instead of looking at the performance and the output of it, how are we looking at how am I continuing my habit of that thing? And if that means that you're still, like for me, if that means I'm still performing keynotes in my room to myself, like, <laughs> okay, do that, you know, because... You do your the, thing. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, how are we doing? Lamp! <laughs> you know? Um, but I think that that's a really important um, and necessary way for us to remove ego from what we do and actually continue to to build and grow because otherwise we will stagnate if we have no intended audience especially if you're a live performer and there's no intended audience you could you could completely stop doing what you're doing and that is so bad that is so bad for artists to to stop uh, and and be paused in their craft versus being like okay this isn't the normal audience i have but if I have the ability to continue to to be in the habit of making, then I should be. And so that's kept me sane in these in these last few months. That's really great. I really like how you um, were talking earlier about uh, change in other people and facilitating all that kind of change and how this little bit of um, inspiration here sort of gave us a reason to think about change in ourselves. Totally, which is the which is the point, right? We can't do anything unless we're willing to change ourselves. Thanks so much for that. Um, if people want to find out more about yourself uh, and the work that you do, wh where can they find out more? Yeah, so all of my information is on my website, Keshia Hanum, K-E-S-H-I-A, Hanum, H-A-N-N-A-M.com. And then I'm Keshia Hanum, same spelling on all social media platforms. Yay! Guys, well, this was amazing. Thank, thank you so you much so for holding much. space and for doing this. I love your podcast. I love the guests you choose to have and I love that you are making something that is usually quite esoteric very accessible and we appreciate the work you do 
Thanks, Kesh. We appreciate you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Of course. Stay safe in London. Well, thanks so much for listening, everyone. And um, join us next time for more creative chat. Bye. Bye.